Turn to Acts 14. Shall we take the good and not the evil? Right out of Acts 14, right? No. Out of Job 2. We'll get there. And as you turn there, I want to speak about this box. This box. Now this box is a representation of the very problem we're speaking about today. You see, this box is marketed to us as that which brings happiness, goodness, wholeness. Here's my angle on it. That this is a mass conspiracy by a gang that rules our streets wearing green and white uniforms. <laughs> it's a subversive plot even in their marketing. It says thin mints. There is nothing thin about these. First of all, you have to understand, my wife pointed this out, how many calories in a serving? 42,000 calories in a serving. Now, it breaks down to like 160 calories per serving, but who, who are we kidding? You don't eat just one. So one serving is the entire box. I started at the Warriors game last night in my recliner with a box, and I ended up with a box. We think these bring us pleasure. Well, they do. But the real name that this should be is called the Waste Buster. The Wardrobe Realigner. Right? By the way, what are the Girl Scouts doing with all the billions of dollars they're making off of these things? And there's some kind of voodoo in here because every year we go right back to it, right? We like expand our waistlines. We get sick from eating them. And what do we do? We go buy more the very next year. I'm telling you, there is a conspiracy. Now, some of you, I can see you have a connection to Girl Scouts. And you're like, you are bagging on the girl. That speaks to my whole thing of the conspiracy, right? There's now a hit on me <laughs> by the Girl Scouts of America. This is our problem. Is it in, in some senses, this is very evil for me to eat. It's not good for me. But I like it. It's comfortable. It's easy. It satisfies in the moment. This is our problem with God and evil. Now that's what you call a teaser. Because if I was sitting where you were, I'm like, how on earth are you going to link that up? Here we go. Here we go. We have an incredible passage today. And so let's start with understanding this. The problem with God and evil is one of perspective. All right? It's one of perspective. Kingdom perspective versus self-interest. Now, throughout your day, throughout your week, throughout your lifetime, it is being marketed to you that you should do things in self-interest. You should do things in self-interest. And so when something happens... As a believer that God is in control of all things, this is what I truly believe because I see it in Scripture and I've experienced this in my own life, when something bad happens that doesn't work with God, it instantly, in my own self-interest, makes me wonder, is God paying attention? Are you there yet? Is God paying attention? And here's the challenge for many of us today is that 
there's probably some empty seats in here by people who their faith, as Paul would say, has been derailed because their perspective of God was misaligned because of evil. You're not off target when you believe that God is in control of all things. Now the rational thought then is a syllogism. God is in control of all things. There is evil in the world. Therefore, God brings evil into the world. Syllogisms are great when you want to get some kind of a flow of thinking, but they also go into what's called flawed logic because it only allows for that thought. There's much more to it. And rather than me just preach this idea to you, we have the luxury today of watching it unfold. And I want you to take note of this because this is one of the most powerful challenges we all face as believers. And people around you disregard God and say, if that's the God of the Bible, I want what? Nothing to do with Him. I want nothing to do with Him. How do you answer that? You have the luxury today. This, can I tell you how powerful this moment is in Scripture? You have the luxury today of watching it happen. And you're going to get one answer, not the complete answer. You're going to get one answer, but it's going to give you the kind of gravitas to go right to Acts 14 and have this conversation with anybody. Maybe even yourself. Paul and Barnabas are killing it. They are doing a great job. They're in Asia Minor and they just move from town to town. And they have masses of people that hear the message of Christ and come to Christ. But then what happens? Well, that message of Christ turns everything on its head and there's a threat to the power establishment. When there is a threat to the power establishment, there is now a contract on your head. Right? I'm going to get real nervous anytime I see a Girl Scout out there now. There were individuals that chased Paul and Barnabas out of each town. Now they're in their third town in this region. It's a town called Lystra. And so they have great success, but look at this comment. Success is fickle. On one day you can be riding way up here, and the next day you can be at your lowest and done. How many of you watched Marcus Cousins' Achilles split? My wife and I saw it, and I called it within two seconds. Why? Because I had the same thing happen. And he will never be the same. DeMarcus Cousins is one of the top, he's an all-star basketball player. He will never be the same. And he was re getting ready for a massive contract. Um, there was talk about him maybe even going to the Cavaliers. And now he's done. We see this happen in the narrative today. But maybe you understand this. Maybe you've been at the pinnacle. And the very next moment, you're at the very bottom. Paul and Barnabas has this happened to them over and over and over. Put your mind in the context of ministry and trying to understand spiritually your relationship with God. You see, in the, in, in, in the sense of thinking or perspective of self-interest, I'm thinking, if I just obey God, if I step in faith, all things are going to what? Go well for me. But that's not what we'll see in Scripture today. Nor have we seen that yet. So let's start to look at this and, and tear it apart. 
First point today, the crippled are healed to reach those in Lystra. There's a change here. Usually what happens is you see Paul and Barnabas speaking and preaching and reasoning. And Paul is speaking here, but there's a big change in Paul's ministry. He actually imitates Peter from early on in the Acts narrative. And almost word for word, when Peter comes upon someone who's crippled, Paul does the same action. And so the power behind what we're going to see happen in Lystra really has everything to do with the miraculous that complements the message. Let's look at verses 8 through 10, shall we? Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Wow. Now this man was crippled from birth. So it's not like, I know a lot of you think the miraculous has happened for your pastor. He made it to his conference. He walked the streets of San Antonio. I actually had to share with people, I, I, I went to a movie um, uh, one night after being down at the Riverwalk and having dinner. And when I got out, it was really late and I was in a mall. I can handle San Antonio. I can figure out where I'm going. You put me in a mall that has 18 levels to it? And, and the movie theaters is split into three different zones and all this. So I get out of the movie at like 11 o'clock. And I'm like, how on earth am I going to figure out how to get out of here? And as I walk out, there's one of those signs that says exit. Just exit. And there's solid metal doors, right? Doesn't say emergency exit. It says exit. And it says mall store management. So you know that hallway, right? And I'm like, all right, I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going I'm to do this. So I go through, and, and it's, that, it's that hallway. And at the end of the hallway is another exit sign, two more metal doors. And, and, I, you know, go, and, and I go down seven flights of stairs. And I open the door, and I walk out, and there's this giant eight-foot construction fence. And I'm like, oh, well, they must be doing construction on the street here. And so I turn to my left, and I walk down 20 yards to the left, and it's just solid fence. There's no outlet. By the way, I've got my Jack Bauer satchel on, too, okay, with my computer. And uh, so I'm like, oh, okay. And before I even got there, I'm thinking, that door locked behind me. <laughs> and I turn around, and I'm going towards the other direction, praying for an opening. And on my way, I go, and I'm just like, why even check it? There's no point. There's, there's no point. I'm done. I'm history. But I check it, and sure enough, the door's locked and there's no way out. I'm in the construction zone. So don't tell me what I was thinking about the city of San Antonio in that moment. Uh, there's no one to call, there's no one to do anything, and you know, I've got this bad back now, and, and the miraculous happened. I just went up and over that eight foot high fence, did a double pirouette, <laughs> and stuck the landing. It's a thing of beauty, and, and unfortunately there was nobody there to record it but you'll just have to trust me. Um, that was kind of miraculous, right? I was like, that. okay, thank you, Lord. No, it wasn't miraculous at all, but it was like, thank you, Lord, that you helped me get over this fence. That's not the case with this guy. He has never walked. And when we look at the miracles of Jesus in Acts, he often picks the hardest, most impossible scenario, so there is no doubt. What was the result? 
Well, there's a couple things I want you to take from this idea. Number one, he had the faith to be made well. And understanding that it is through our faith that we are healed. What is beautiful in this moment is that Paul, in his spiritual leadership, is sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit that he can look intently at this man and the Spirit reveals to him, this man has faith in the message that you are bringing. What kind of faith would that require? I've been crippled since birth. And this man comes along with a new and fresh message. Sometimes we look at the world around us and we don't believe they'll believe this. We have doubts about it. Can I encourage you, don't have doubts. If it can save you, it can save the person next to you. Amen? It is a message of power. It is a message of love. It is a message of healing. It is a tremendous message. So Paul has the discernment to listen to the Spirit, and he has spiritual insight given by God in order that God might work powerfully through he and Barnabas. And so with insight, he looks at the man and he says, your faith will heal you. He says, get up, rise, walk, and what happens? He does. So what happens next? Point number two. The crowds elevate Paul and Barnabas to hero status. They go from zero to hero. Actually, it's bigger than that. They go to God status. Now you've got to understand where they are. The Roman gods, which we'll name as Greek gods, Zeus, um, Hermes, they equated Paul and, and uh, Barnabas in this manner. Pick it up in verse 11. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Oh, what prophetic words they said without realizing what actually they said. They are right. God came down in the likeness of men. But they're attributing it to the wrong person or wrong people. They're having the proper response, but it's misguided. So what happens? How do Barnabas and Paul handle this? Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. If you ever wondered how that dynamic worked, there you go. The Bible just explained what, what, how this is working in their, in their tandem effort of ministry. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. They see this miracle happen, and they believe the gods have come. Okay, we got these guys right where we want them. They're addicted to thin mints. No, they're addicted to seeing what God can do. But they don't understand how to apply it. They do understand worship, a response of worship. But Paul and Barnabas shut them down immediately. And you need to understand in this, in this succession of what I'm talking about, I always want us to look at this idea of spiritual leadership as we walk through this story today. Successful spiritual leadership listens and discerns God's leading. This is what Paul does as he encounters the crippled man. The crippled man is healed. And now they're being exalted to God's status. What do they do? The crowds elevate Paul and Barnabas in their status. Well, here we see successful spiritual leadership recognizes the glory is to be on God and only God. 
And so Paul and Barnabas make a big deal about this. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, the gospel, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in, the, uh, all that is in them. And he goes on and goes on to talk about God and, and clarifies because their mindset is on God's and Paul finds it necessary to delineate between the Roman gods and who God himself actually is. Good spiritual leadership. We're going to give the glory where the glory is due. This is something that we can learn. Third, the crowds are swayed against Paul and Barnabas by personal fear. Verses 19 and 20. Look at what happens. They're still in quote-unquote God's status. And what happens? Those from Antioch, those from Iconium, catch up to them. They are literally being hunted. And they get into town and they start bad-mouthing salacious accusations against Paul and Barnabas. We don't know exactly what they were, but they were strong enough to sway a crowd that was ready to exalt these men. And now in a moment's notice, they turn from exaltation into persecution. What happens? Verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They killed Paul. Let's just build this altar to you, because you're so great. Uh, He's not so great. You're going to lose your power, and uh, everybody's going to kind of turn against your structure here. It's going to cost you money. Uh, stones, stones for sale. I got your stones right here. Let's go. Line that puppy, puppy up. Is he dead? Not quite dead yet. Is he dead? Yeah, yeah, he's dead. Let's drag him out and leave him in the trash heap. Can you imagine what Barnabas was thinking? Well, it was a good run. We hit like 22 cities. We got a lot of great... Uh, response apparently this is the end and I guess the work is over it would have been nice to go back and really establish those believers and and make sure that they were doing well but it looks like it's over isn't that what you would think isn't that what I would think (laughs) our leader just got killed where are you God where are you God This isn't just persecution. He got killed. Our message is over. Oh, and by the way, you know, we heal. We do this great thing. And everybody's so excited about you, God. And then what happens? You let the one who healed him get killed. That kind of takes away from the power and credibility of our message. In case you didn't notice, God. Now I'm stuck here all alone. God, what are you thinking, God? This wasn't in the plan, God. What are the things we would be saying? Well, look, 
Look at this idea. Successful spiritual leadership is courageous in the face of suffering. And it would be one thing if the story went the way I just said. But here's the reality. Often for us, that's what happens in our heart. And who's to say that's not what's happening in Barnabas' heart? He's got to be wondering what's going on. But this isn't the end of the story. The fourth and final point is the completion of God's work. Verses 21 through 23. It's the end of the story. The orcs are taking helms deep. Gimli lost his beard. Legolas grew old. It's over, right? Sauron wins. That wasn't for a fact. That really, my voice is going bad. And then something happens. By the way, this is a typology. There's some music. And it's coming from my wife's cell phone. <laughs> We're going to remember this moment for years to come. <laughs> Thank you, honey. That was planned just to set up this point. You hit it perfectly. All right. Verses 21 through 23. What really happens? Actually, back it up to 20. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and hit the road and said, Barnabas, let's get out of here. In case you didn't notice, it's a really dangerous place and they don't like me. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Successful spiritual leadership trusts in the Lord and embraces the good and the bad for the cause of Christ. He was dead, or presumed dead. Like, kick him, he's not moving, dead. The disciples gather around him, we're probably praying, and he gets up. What does he do? He walks right back into the face of those who tried to kill him. Because why? He understands kingdom thinking, not self-interest. He understands God, not self-interest. And he walks right back in. Now, look at the brilliance of this. As we finish up today, understand this. What happened? He walks back in. But the disciples gathered around him. He rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe another city. So they didn't stay there for very long, but long enough. When they had preached the gospel to that city, by the way, we're staying on task with what God's asked us to do. I died yesterday, but let's just get right back to the work. No, no, Paul, come on, like, take a day. No, I don't need a day. Let's go. We got stuff to do. When they had preached, to the, got, preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they then returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There is your perspective. 
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Backtrack just a little bit. Going from Antioch to Iconium. Great results, and yet they're chased out. Couldn't you imagine these two talking and saying, yeah, but our work wasn't done. What's going to happen to these guys? They're not established. They get to Iconium, same thing happens. Many believers have, and then they get persecuted and run out of town. Probably the same conversation. Hey, we're not doing really well with this follow-up, Paul or, or, or Barnabas. What do we do? It's obviously a concern of theirs. Then they get to Lystra and this happens and Paul gets up and he walks right back into the face of the enemy because he understood the kingdom work. Now let me show you the power of God's design. What seemed to be evil. What at one moment seems like you're, you're at the top. You go from first to worst, but then you go right back up. Think about the message. What message are they bringing? God came down. He healed. He brings a message of healing. He died. But through the Father's power, he rose again. Does that give you chills? We're going to kill you just like the Jews and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees killed Jesus because you are a threat to our way. Paul is understood to be dead, and he gets up, he rises, he resurrects. Now, the literal understanding here is very simple. He's not completely dead, okay? But the people believed him to be dead. He rises, and rather than go and leave and think about his own self-interest, he walks right into the face of those. And what happened in the end of the story? The very thing that was probably a concern of Paul and Barnabas's. They now have unbelievable credibility and now they have absolutely put the fear of God in those who have attacked them. So much so, they boldly walk right back into the town where they were killed. They boldly walk into the previous three towns where they were run out and persecuted. And not only do they do that, they establish the church. Can you believe? Can you understand? Can you fathom the, the boldness of those believers in those cities now? Knowing what happened to Paul and what happened to Barnabas, and they come back, and they would have been witnessing, and we see no record of those who were facing them before, no record of them facing them now. So the implication is that the fear of God struck those people and it allowed the church now to flourish and not be persecuted at its early foundings. Is that not incredible how God worked? But if we had stopped on the day Paul was stoned to death, we simply would have said in self-interest, God, where are you? Isn't it fascinating? I'm going to give you a couple things here in closing that are practical things to think about when it comes to this issue of evil around us and a God that is in control of all things. Number one, understand first and foremost that mankind is hostile to a true act of God. 
It is a threat to them. And so when God truly acts, you should expect resistance. So rather than have this self-interest of, what are you talking, how does this work, God? I, I do this, I'm obedient, I take these steps of faith. You actually even work in this, and now I'm suffering? How does this work? Can we on the front side understand that we live in a world that is hostile to God? So if God does something incredible, miraculous, even shows a slight glimmer of his face, there will be a reaction. And if you're part of that team, there are huge challenges and chances you are going to catch some of that. Embrace it. Understand it. Don't be shocked by it and don't let it derail your faith. Secondly, understand that we often don't see the long game when it comes to suffering. I would have been challenged that day when Paul's laying dead outside the city to think, where are you, God? Would you? And yet, Barnabas waited for the long game. And look at how it unfolded. Do you see that? Do you see ultimately what happened? So when you're in that moment of suffering, you're saying, God, where are you? I encourage you. I implore you. Know your God. That He is good. And that He works in justice. And sometimes because of the world that we live in, there has to be suffering in order for kingdom work to truly take effect. Play the long game. Understand that God doesn't use evil. This is really the crux of the conversation, isn't it? And, and we'll hit this here in a minute at the very end. So take copious notes. Understand that God doesn't use evil. He allows it for a greater kingdom purpose. And we'll explain that in a minute. Understand where you are. You're in, you're in earth, not heaven. This place is broken, has been since Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3. It's broken. It is said that Satan is the prince of this world. That doesn't mean God's not in control. But God allows for things to take place because of greater constructs that we'll speak to in a minute. Understand that courageous spiritual focus is not derailed because of suffering, nor is the character of God because of evil. He cannot invoke evil because it is counter to his very nature. Rabbi Zacharias has a great story about this issue of God and evil and our perspective on it. Uh, I think he said it was a, it was kind of like a, a, a pro <coughs> excuse me, a proverb of some sort. And he says it goes like this. There's a gentleman who had a horse. And one day the horse got free. It was a beautiful horse. And the horse got free and his neighbor came to him and he said, boy, well that's, how unlucky is that? That your beautiful horse got free. That's horrible. And the man responded by saying, I can't know about such things. That was an interesting response. The next day the horse comes back, but it brings 20 wild horses with him. And so the neighbor comes back and he goes, what a stroke of luck. Your horse gets out and then it returns and brings 20 more horses. And the man says, I can't pretend to know about such things. And so the next day, the man's son is out tending to the horses 
and he's trying to train one of these new wild horses and it kicks him and breaks his leg. You know who shows up. The neighbor shows up and again, again and he says, oh, what horrible luck. Had those horses not come, your son wouldn't have got his leg broken. The man says, I can't know about such things. Well, it just happened that there was a ravaging gang of Girl Scouts. That's actually not part of the story. I just thought I'd throw that in. Uh, the way the story is told is that there was a gang going through that area looking to recruit healthy young men. And because his son had a broken leg, they passed right over him. And the neighbor comes and says, how great is that? How lucky are you? And the man says, I can't pretend to know about such things. This is what it means to trust in God and have a greater understanding of his character. God allows evil, Job 2, and I'll finish with this so you can understand this a little bit. Job 2. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to turn there and I'm going to read it. <coughs> How do we wrap our head around the fact that there is evil in this world? Ravi's point was that this issue is an ethical issue. Let me ask you, how many of you would report a parent that takes his child and sticks his infant's finger in a wall socket and electrocutes them? How many of you would, you can go, you can go we'll shut off the tape. Okay, how many of you would report that, that person? What's wrong with the rest of you, okay? <laughs> now, what if you're a parent that just doesn't put those plugs in and you warn your child? This is a no touch, right? But your child goes ahead. Now, nobody's jamming the finger and holding it in there. That would be the personification of evil, wouldn't it? But you as a parent give your child free will even though they can act in ignorance. There may even be a slight understanding there's only so much that can happen there and, and that you know, if they get a little bit of a, a small shock, it'll teach them never to touch that again. That's old school thinking. Now some of you are safety Nazis and you put helmets on your children and put them in bubble suits and you have no electricity in your house, so this will never happen. Now you laugh. But that's what we want to do with God. We want to isolate and sanitize ourselves from suffering. If we were to do that, I want you to understand that God would have to put helmets on us. He would have to take away all the dangers and we would never, never be able to demonstrate the free will to choose to love him. And that is not the character of God. That is one of the reasons evil exists. I'll take you there now. Job 2. I'm there. Where, where do I want to go? Four through six. Satan somehow, I don't know how this works, don't ask me later this week. I don't know, and if any scholar, Bible scholar tells you that they know, they're wrong. Don't listen to them anymore. But we just trust the word of God. 
Somehow, after the fall, Satan's been banished. Somehow, Satan gets audience with God. And God actually seems to be a little bit surprised, saying, what are you doing here? And where have you been? He says, oh, I've been on the earth going to and fro. And God says to him, hey, have you seen my servant Job? He is certifiable. He's my number one. Right? Satan says, yeah, you surround him with like all-star offensive line. He's got no pressure on him. Of course he's going to be excellent. Of course he's going to be Tom Brady. By the way, just so you know, you should take a biblical perspective about that game today. Roger, I expect a huge amen on this. Scripture mentions Eagles 33 times, Patriots zero. <laughs> Just saying, from biblical perspective. So Satan challenges God and he says, you've, you've made this cush life for him. Take it away and let's see what he really does. Listen to this. But stretch out your hand, verse 5, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So does God actually touch Job's flesh? Does God actually wound Job? No, listen. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. He allows Satan to put Job through trial. Who does this sound like? I know you're going to get it. It's the Bible's Sunday school answer. Starts with a J, ends with an S. Who was tempted in the garden? Who was tempted right after they were baptized? Who was afflicted? He wasn't afflicted by his father. He was afflicted by Satan. So be very careful when you want to attribute evil to God. It's counter to his character. He cannot invoke evil because there is no evil in him. In essence, what happens is exactly what we see here. It is a removing of his protection. Satan understood this and says, well, you put all this protection around him. Take it away. Let me have my day on him. And let's see what he says. Let's go down. It gets kind of bad. It gets a little rough for Job. And we love Job's wife. She's so real. Verse 9. The, oh, I thought it said the wife. Well, that's like the message translation. Okay. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Well, really, Job? Are you going like, to be praising God? Do you understand how bad it is? Curse God and die. Has it ever gotten that bad, ladies? Oh, I don't hear any amen. <laughs> Job's wife is famous, unfortunately, for being real. What did Job say to her? But he said to her, you speak as one of those foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job did not say that God was going to give evil. 
He said, shall we not receive good from God and also not receive evil, which is trial. Actually, the, the Hebrew breakdown of that word is trial. It's not necessarily the way we personify the, the idea of evil. The last thing I want to take you to to help you understand this is right back into the garden. God gave man in this beautiful initial setup, everything to thrive, right? He creates man, and then he creates this incredible garden. Joanna Gaines got nothing on God when it comes to putting a garden together. That's a big subject in our house right now. I'm so sick of, Joe, if you're listening, I love you, but man, your face is everywhere. It's in Target. It's on magazines. I'm getting oversaturated here. God created this beautiful garden, but he put one thing in it to test the free will of man. Remember, we're talking about free will. We can eradicate that. God can eradicate that. But the idea is the greatest ethic about Christianity is love. Love cannot be demonstrated in a vacuum. Do we understand that? And so he creates this option for free will demonstration. And what happens? It is named the tree of what? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do you understand we would have no concept of the contrast between good and evil had they not eaten of that? Who is responsible for evil in the world? Is it God? It traces back to the fall. It traces back to one decision. It traces back to Satan's effort to deceive. And deceive he did. And we ate of it. Free will choice. And that is why there is evil, brothers and sisters. Be careful about attributing evil to God in your suffering. Play the long game. Let me close by saying this. During our worship, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture. Did Adam and Eve have an issue with God, that he was evil at the end of all things? No. Did Job, at the end of all things and through all of his suffering, ever get quoted as saying that God is evil? No. Did Paul ever say, because I was faithful in my service to you and then you had me killed, I'm changing my view on your character and you are evil. You'll hear Paul's words in between our message or our, our, our songs today. I'm going to go ahead and pray and ask our worship team to come up. And while this is a heavy subject, just understand in closing, one of the reasons we have this attitude about evil or the world has this attitude about the conflict of God being in control of all things, let's just put it that way, and yet evil existing, understand, I know this is evil for me. I know this is evil for me. This box was full last night. So if you ever wondered, if you were in the garden, would you take and eat? Oh yeah, I would have. 
I would have. This isn't an issue of God. This is an issue of self-interest and the lack of kingdom understanding. Let me pray and then we'll join together in worship. Father, thank you for the blessedness of your word. And in our suffering, God, help us never to attribute to you the source of that suffering or the evilness in that suffering, the sinfulness in that suffering, the brokenness in that suffering, that that stems from you. But instead that we would understand you give a way out. You give an answer, a response to evil. You give victory over the evil. And to that we praise you. Thank you, Father. Amen.